Let's pray again together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's good, it's true, it's right. Thank you, Father, that we can gather with your people and hear it uh, read to us. I pray, Father, now your spirit would come and do mighty things. I pray your spirit would bring life and peace and joy and hope and would produce an abundant harvest of good things in us. We desperately need now the work of your spirit. Uh, Would you come and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Whether we are aware of it or not, there is a spiritual battle that's happening all around us. It happens inside of us almost all the time. You can either deny this fact or you can affirm it, but there's no escaping the battle or living without its consequences. On a single day that goes by that you don't see or feel the effect of Satan in his dying domain of darkness. You're being thrust into the midst of a battle every time you turn on your TV. Every time somebody sins against you, every time you feel the pull of a particular temptation on your own soul. We fight this battle in bedrooms, in bathrooms, in kitchens, in living rooms. We experience a struggle with evil in our marriages, in our families, and your relationships with everybody at work, your boss, right, your coworkers. And belonging to the people of God doesn't mean that the struggle against evil is going to be easier for us. In many ways, it'll feel more difficult because now we have eyes to see uh, the nature of the struggle that's happening. So our passage today is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, the story where we see Jesus, our champion, fight this battle with Satan and temptation. We're going to see how Jesus fought Satan and temptation, and his battles are going to teach us some crucial things about how do we fight against Satan and evil in our own lives. In our passage today, we're going to see that Jesus, as a son of Adam, he understands the struggle against evil that we face every single day. What we'll see in our passage today is that Jesus isn't afraid to tackle Satan and evil head on. He confronts our greatest enemy. He grapples with the seductive power of temptation, and through the power of the Spirit, we see him resist the devil, and he drives Satan away. It's really only because of his triumph over evil that we have hope that evil will not triumph over you and our lives. In Jesus, his triumph is our triumph. No matter how fierce our our fight becomes, no matter how many exhausting, knock-down, drag-out fights with evil we experience in our lives. Okay, let's turn now and look at the passage that we read. We're going to see in these first two, uh, two, first two verses how Jesus is going to enter into the fight. How does the fight start uh, with Jesus and Satan? Well, Luke begins our passage by telling us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and he returned from the Jordan. And he was being led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Luke also tells us that Luke, um, that Jesus had nothing during these days and that after this significant period of fasting, Jesus is obviously weak. He's very hungry. Luke tells us several important things as he begins our story. Quickly, let's talk about a few of these things. First, do you see how Jesus begins the fight with Satan with the power of the Spirit? In the chapter right before our passage, we see the Holy Spirit show up in this really important way where the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. And we hear the voice of the Father speaking over His Son, saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. So after the scene, we're told that Jesus is full of the Spirit now. He's going to be led into the wilderness in order to be tested and to do battle with Satan. 
So it tells us something very important. That the work of the Spirit in your life always involves you facing and fighting Satan and evil head on. This is true of Jesus in our passage, and this is the same way we fight evil, evil in our own lives. You see this throughout the scriptures, that the Spirit is the primary agent in equipping us for battle. He's come to us to help you fight. According to the Bible, a Spirit-led life is a life where we jump into the trenches and join the Spirit's war on sin and Satan. And so, people of God, we must trust and depend on the work of the Spirit to equip us to resist, to fight Satan. Consider that the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer, often it may not look really dramatic. It may or may not involve any ecstatic experience. Oftentimes, I don't think it will. Instead, here's what I think the work of the Spirit is going to look like in your life. Something very simple, but it's absolutely essential. It's going to look like you saying no to a particular sin you are tempted with. Okay, so you see the work of the Spirit right off the bat. Notice also at the very beginning here, Satan comes to tempt Jesus in the midst of this season of great weakness, the season of great suffering. Notice when he comes. He comes to Jesus after this season of self-imposed suffering, 40 days, no food, he's fasting. Can you imagine the weakness there, the physical weakness that he feels? And so it's during this time that Satan's going to come to him and tempt him. He's weak after he's suffered. And we can think about our own battle with evil and think that Satan comes to tempt us in the same way, doesn't he? So often he comes while we are struggling, while we are suffering in some way. Have you ever noticed how strongly you feel temptation to sin in a season of life that feels really hard and really painful? Have you ever noticed in the aftermath of a fight with your spouse, uh, suddenly temptation for lust begins to look very powerful? Have you ever been in a difficult season financially and you just you get angry a lot and you're yelling at people, you're yelling at your kids and you're speaking in a very harsh way? Many who suffer will look for false comfort in our sinful flesh and the seductive lies of Satan that he whispers to suffering people. So this means that when you suffer, get ready. Get ready to be tempted. It's only by the help and grace of God that we'll be able to respond to suffering in our lives in a way that's redemptive and not sinful. Okay, notice also that Satan comes to Jesus when he's alone, when he's away from people, he's away from his community. This small detail shows us another important aspect of how Satan so often works. He comes to you and speaks to you most forcefully when you're alone, when you're by yourself. We must see that Satan's work will always thrive in the dark. And its strategy, its strategy is to isolate you and then harm you. And even though this isn't directly stated in our passage, I think a secondary conclusion from this pattern of Satan tempting us when we're alone is this. We absolutely need godly community and redemptive relationships to help us fight evil. If Satan seeks to isolate you and then destroy you, then you must fight uh, him by bringing your battle with evil out into the light and refusing to stay isolated. People of God, if your marriage was in big trouble and you knew it, would anyone outside of you and your spouse know? Uh, Parents, if you had a child that was wandering away from God and fighting some intense emotional spiritual battle, 
Would anyone outside of your family know this? Do you have some secret sin that you fight and you and you alone are the only person on earth who knows about it? If you answer yes to any of this, you have to see you have given Satan the upper hand in the fight and you are putting yourself in a spiritually dangerous place. You must let other people into your battles to help you fight Satan and evil in your flesh. And you must see the danger of fighting alone. Okay, all that's the setup for uh, how our story starts. Let's dive right into now uh, the three temptations that we read about. Let's look at the first temptation that we read. Listen uh, to what Satan says to Jesus, verses 3 through 4. Satan comes to Jesus in the midst of his hunger, in the midst of his great weakness and suffering. And he says to him, if you are the Son of God... Turn these stones into bread. Notice Satan's temptation here. It's, it's very subtle. It's subtle because it's not the what of this temptation that makes it wrong, but it's, it's the why. Would it be sinful for Jesus to create food in order to feed people? Well, no. We know that. He, he does this in other places. He'll do this just a little bit later in Luke's Gospel when he feeds the 5,000. But it's the why. It's the why behind Jesus would do this that makes it so wrong. We should note that never in the Gospels do you see Jesus use his miraculous power to serve himself, but rather to serve others. So this temptation of Jesus involves Satan trying to get Jesus to exercise his power, his sonship, in a way that's primarily selfish. There's really no better summary, I think, of Satan's agenda for his kingdom than the phrase, me first. Uh, It's a phrase I've discovered our children innately know from the youngest age, me first. So Satan wants Jesus to use his power in this self-serving way, in a way that essentially reverses the mission of what he says he's come to earth to do. When he says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In each of these three temptations, we can see Jesus demonstrates that the path that the Son of God must follow is the path of the cross. It's the path of self-denial. It's the path of suffering. Satan wants Jesus to stray from the path of suffering and service that the Father has called him to. Instead, get Jesus to follow the path of the evil one, the path of self-exaltation, the path of selfishness. So how does Jesus respond to Satan's temptation? You'll see him do the same thing, won't we? In every single temptation, he responds by proclaiming God's word to Satan to cut through all the seductive lies and to reject what Satan's proposing. Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. What's Jesus doing here? He's quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, which basically proclaims that God's people are to trust God alone for what they need. What Jesus is basically saying here is that his life is dependent upon the will of the Father, and that humanity's greatest need goes deeper than mere physical sustenance. Jesus is essentially saying here what he says in other places in the Gospels, in places like John 4.34, when he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What else can we learn from uh, how Jesus deals with Satan here? I said this a few seconds ago, and it's super important we see that Jesus is going to fight Satan through the power of God's word. We see in his interaction with Satan that he wields the power of the Spirit through God's word by proclaiming it, trusting it. God's word alone has the power to cut through all the seductive lies of Satan. And Jesus, throughout our passage, will use God's word to silence the voice of evil. 
Jesus doesn't appeal to any man-made argument in order to drive the devil away, but over and over again, he responds to temptations by saying, it is written, it is said, right? He's quoting scripture. This means in order to effectively deal with the presence of sin in your own life, we have to cling to God's word. You have to know the scriptures. You have to cling to the sin-killing power of the promises that are there. The lies of Satan are too seductive. They are too deceptive. They are too powerful for you to resist them through your sheer willpower. You must know and grab hold of God's word to cut through all the lies of sin whenever you feel the pull of evil on your own soul. One last important lesson we can learn from this first temptation. We see this in the first and the third temptation. Is that Satan wants us to doubt who we are as God's children. He wants us to doubt who we are as God's children. Notice the essence of the temptation for Jesus and the first one and the third one is to basically doubt the Father's declaration of love that he's already been given. Twice Jesus says, twice Satan says to Jesus, if you're the Son of God, you gotta prove it. Prove it by some miraculous sign. What should grab our attention here is the context of these statements in Luke. We've said earlier that just right before this chapter, Jesus had already publicly been declared to be God's beloved son in his baptism. And if you read the Gospels, it's clear that Satan knows who Jesus is. In the next chapter of Luke, when Jesus encounters a man with a demon, the demon proclaims, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Later in Luke 4, we read the demons come out of many and they cry, you are the Son of God. So it's clear that Satan, the temptation story, doesn't tell Jesus to prove who he is so that Satan will believe it. No, he knows who he is. This is something he understands very well. No, Satan wants Jesus to stop believing who he is, to doubt who he is, and he wants Jesus to twist and pervert his sonship into something that fundamentally denies his calling as God's son. In other words, Satan wants Jesus not to live by faith and trust the words of the Father in his baptism, which proclaims who he is. You are my beloved son. I recently came across this quote uh, from a book I really like. It's a guy named Ed Shaw. Ed Shaw is a, a British pastor. The name of the book is uh, Same Sex Attraction in the Church. Uh, Ed is a guy who clearly preaches God's gospel of grace. He also has a lifelong struggle with homosexual attraction. He believes God's word clearly prohibits uh, this sexual attraction. This is a great book for anybody, whether that's your struggle, or whether you just want great insights on how to follow Jesus while you fight sin. Listen to what he says about Satan wanting to doubt who we truly are. Ed writes, Yesterday I sought out a trailer for a film in which an attractive man was half naked at times. As I was repenting to my father God afterwards, what was the devil telling me? This is who you are. The sort of man who spends time lusting. You call yourself a Christian? You can't be and enjoy doing this. Where does the evil one take the battle? Straight to my identity. That's where the battle's fiercest, and that's why I need to hold on to my identity in Christ so much. He writes, I yesterday had to keep saying to myself, this isn't the real you. You are God's son. God has permanently made you that through the death of Jesus. You shouldn't have done what you just did, but it changes nothing about you. He says, every day of my life, I need to keep on saying that. I love what he says there. So we see a major role of Satan's work in temptation is to make you doubt who you truly are and to rely on something other than the word of the Father to know who you are. 
Satan wants you to live with a prove-it mindset when it comes to who we truly are instead of a mindset that lives by faith and trusts God's promises. People of God, do you want to be assured that you really are God's son, that you're God's daughter, that you belong, you belong to the Lord, you belong to his family? Then don't look to how good of a Christian you think that you are. Don't look to how you feel day in and day out. Don't look to the approval of people to answer this. Instead, trust something more reliable than yourself, something more reliable than those around you. Trust what God says in his word. Trust his promises given to you in your baptism. The promises that we hear each week through the Lord's Supper. Trust the assurance from God that comes through the Spirit working through God's promises. Okay, let's move on now. Let's move on to the second temptation that we see. Who tells us in verse 5 that Satan took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He says to Jesus, To you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. Of course, Satan just gives him one catch for this, right? He says in order to gain such vast glory, in order to gain this kind of authority, he says, you must worship me. So the essence of this temptation is about gaining power and glory through false worship. Notice again the, the subtlety of what Satan is doing here. Our authority and glory and power evil in and of themselves? Of course not. But it's the route that Satan wants Jesus to take in order to gain these things that's so evil. What I find so interesting about this temptation is that Satan again offers this to Jesus in the midst of Jesus being in the season of enormous weakness, enormous suffering after fasting for 40 days. One commentator, uh, I read a guy I like named Daryl Bach, he says this very succinctly. He says, in a place where Jesus has nothing, he's offered everything. So this is the allure of Satan's temptation, that Jesus could leave behind the hunger and the difficulty of the wilderness in order to assume enormous power over all the kingdoms of the world. And if we read the scriptures, we can see that Jesus, as the royal son of God, prophesied in Psalm 2, He was indeed given everything Satan was offering here in this temptation, but he didn't receive it in the way that Satan offered. Jesus was indeed given all the nations of the earth as his inheritance, but he was given these things only after he followed the Father's path laid out for him. You know, the Father's path was the path of suffering, the path of the cross, the path that led Jesus to places of hunger and thirst, places of deep suffering and the shameful death on the cross. It led to his empty tomb and being exalted to the right hand of the Father where he received the ends of the earth as his possession. And so our fight in our fight against Satan, we must not only look out for what Satan offers you, but the how. How does he offer it to you? The means by which you're going to attain the things that they offer. Jesus promised something good, but the means by which he was promised to get it was idolatry in a very wicked way. We also need to see uh, here, and don't miss the obvious centrality of worship in this temptation. It's very interesting here that Satan is going to link evil worship and blessings together. And we see this throughout the scriptures. We see that idolatry always promises people good things. Idolatry promised the people of Israel um, that if they followed the pagan gods, they would get blessings. They would receive fertile crops, political power, stability. But again and again throughout the biblical story, we see that idolatry, it never makes good on the promises that it delivers. But instead, it brings about misery and destruction. 
Satan uses the sin of idolatry to deceive people and deliver death instead of blessings. So this second temptation makes us face the question, who or what will we worship in order to experience the blessings of God? The Bible teaches us that worship is a a certainty for all human beings. You were made to worship the living God, and so if you turn away from Him, you, you will worship something else. Worship is not optional for human beings. It is inescapable because we're made in God's image. The heart of worship is about where you will offer your ultimate allegiance. Who will receive your deepest trust? What voice will you listen to and obey above every other voice? All right, so what does Jesus do after being shown all these kings of the earth and offer their glory in exchange for false worship? Once again, we see him cut through lies with more scripture. Again, he's in a quote from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, 13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Which is basically just a rewording of the first commandment. You shall know their gods before me. So Jesus refuses Satan's gift of earthly power and glory that is achieved only at the cost of worshiping the incarnation of evil itself. It's significant that the only other time you see this word worship in Luke's Gospel is at the very end of the book, in the last few verses of Luke's Gospel, in chapter 24. You read that the disciples, after being blessed by Jesus, after seeing him being raised into the heavens, were told that they worshipped him. And so Luke's Gospel closes with his disciples joyfully giving to Jesus what Satan requested of him, one's loyalty expressed in worship. And Jesus receives this worship, this exaltation, from the disciples only after he completed his mission on earth and drank from the Father's cup of suffering that was prepared for him. And again, we see what we said earlier. Jesus tells us the path of glory will not come through self-exaltation. It will not come through idolatry. The path of glory to the living God will take you through suffering. It will take you through the cross. Let's move on now and look at the last temptation that we see. The third one we'll see in verses 9 through 12. What do we see in this one? Well, Satan's going to change the setting, and he's going to change up the tactic as well. We're told that he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. We don't know exactly where that is. Um, Some people think it might have been one of the highest parts of the temple, a place called the Royal Porch. This would have been the temple's southeast corner. So if he was at the spot, probably the highest spot in the temple, we're not, we're not sure, he would have been beside this huge cliff that overlooked the Kidron Valley. We don't know, but some people estimate a drop there could have been 400 plus feet from the top of the temple all the way down to the bottom. So he takes him to this point, and he tells him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So again, what's striking here is Satan's going to try a new tactic. He begins with Jesus' tactic, quoting the scriptures. He's going to quote Psalm 91 in order to convince Jesus that he should do what Satan is suggesting. So Satan wants to twist God's word in such a subtle way and to pit really parts of the Bible against itself. That teaches something I think really important. We should immediately begin to put up our guards when somebody wants to use part of the Bible to nullify other parts of the Bible. So one simple but important application here is that not every person that can quote the Bible to us is someone who knows God and can be trusted. It's just remarkable here that Satan can quote it from memory. So what does Jesus do? He appeals to the plain meaning of the Bible in this clear and compelling way. He quotes from the same part of the Bible he's already been quoting from, from the book of Deuteronomy. Of course, Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Satan's temptation basically falsely assures Jesus that God will protect him no matter what he does, even if he chooses a path that is foolish or reckless. The part of this temptation is so destructive is that it demands that we trust God, but we only trust him on our terms. On the surface, Satan's temptation looks like it called Jesus to faith, right? He's quoting the Bible. That looks pretty good. But we can see quickly that the kind of faith that Satan calls Jesus to is a self-serving pseudo-faith where Jesus would demand that the Father work how and whenever he wanted. The temptation is simply uh, an attempt to get Jesus to do the exact opposite of what we see him do in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, we see Jesus, after sweating these drops of blood because of his pending death, he proclaims that he'll trust the Father even more than he trusts himself. If Jesus were to do what Satan tempts him in this final temptation, he'd essentially be telling the Father, my will, not yours be done. We also see in this temptation that sin is reckless and it pushes us towards self-destruction. Something else I'm struck by in this last temptation is that Satan wants Jesus to cling to this false, deceptive faith in order to really get Jesus to essentially destroy himself. And there's a bit of a mystery here. Jesus truly is one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In some mysterious way, I think that's not theologically neat and tidy, Satan is attempting to persuade Jesus to make this terrible decision um, that could have been a reality. This decision was about choosing self-destruction under the guise of trusting God. Satan sought to persuade Jesus that one can twist and pervert faith into the self-serving thing where you can manipulate God as opposed to submitting him. This is another powerful picture, I think, of what Satan and sin's agenda looks like in our own lives. The kingdom of darkness is about pushing you towards choosing a path that will destroy yourself. And all the while, you're, you're very deceived into thinking this is a good thing. It's been years ago, I went to a friend of mine's apartment after he's going through a, a really difficult time. And when I was there, he showed me a note that his brother had written. This letter was unlike anything I've, I've ever seen, I've ever read. The letter called on people to trust God no matter the circumstances. It talked about how God is weaving everything together in our lives. He's using all the good things in our lives. He's going to use the pain and the struggle and everything to create something beautiful. The letter talked about how one day, from the right perspective, we'll be able to look back and we'll see God was working everything together for the good. If you didn't know anything about the letter, you would just easily assume this is a good thing. It's coming from someone who's sharing God's truth and wisdom. The reality is that this letter um, was written by my friend's brother at the very end before he took his life. It was the last thing he wrote to communicate uh, to his family before um, before he lost his life. And I've often thought about that letter. And it's such a powerful picture of how Satan and sin operate. And how Satan and sin are doing the same things we see in our passage today with Jesus' temptation. They want you to choose the path of destruction and all the while be convinced this is good. This is right. Satan and sin want you to feel justified in your anger, no matter how destructive the consequences. They want you to believe that you are justly driven to lust because of all the frustration that you feel in all your difficult circumstances. They want you to believe that bitterness and hatred, it feels right because you've been so deeply harmed by other people. Let's move on. Let's look at the last verse in our passage. Um, this is a very short verse, but it's very significant. Look, look what Luke writes in verse 13. 
He says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. Um, so what we see in this, this temptation at the very end is that Jesus triumphs. He triumphs over all the temptations of Satan that were thrown in his face. What conclusions can we draw here from our whole passage and how it ends? i got four things very quickly we're going to talk about. First, Jesus understands your battles with evil. And he alone is qualified to help you because he's gone ahead of you. He's fought evil on your behalf and he's triumphed in the fight. Consider we have a Savior who understands every temptation that you face. You do not have a Savior who stands aloof from your struggles against sin and Satan, but one who has already entered into the thick of the fight with Satan and temptation, and he has triumphed over all of them for you. The author of the book of Hebrews says this so well. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. People of God, there's nothing, there's nothing you could face to be tempted with that Jesus hasn't already faced on your behalf. And the Bible says because of that, he's full of sympathy towards you. He's full of love. He understands the pain and the suffering involved in saying no to evil. He knows what it's like to feel the seductive pull of evil and to have to fight against it. So in the midst of all your struggles with sin and Satan, go to Jesus. Pray to him. Ask for his help. Pour your heart out to him and trust him that he really is able to help those who are being tempted because he himself suffered when tempted. Jesus doesn't ask you to do anything in the fight against evil that he has not already gone ahead of you and done himself. Okay, so the second thing I want to see from all this is Satan is powerful, but he can be resisted. What happens at the end of our passage? We're told Jesus resists Satan's temptations and he departs from Jesus until an opportune time. Our passage teaches us that by the power of the Spirit, you can resist. You can resist Satan and temptation so that he flees from you. Well, you're obviously not perfectly like the Lord Jesus, and we know that he'll come back. You are always able, by the help of God, to say no to whatever evil thing you are tempted with. Paul says this best. He says this to a sin-infested Corinthian church. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So often when we fight sin, Satan makes you feel like it's inevitable, doesn't he? Like the temptation is coming, and there's no way out of it. You will never be able to say no to this. People of God don't ever believe that terrible lie. No matter how many times you have fought and lost to a particular temptation, God promises us that by the help of His Spirit, you are always able to walk away. You are always able to say no. third thing we see from everything we've seen is that the Christian life, we should expect the Christian life to be a lifelong battle with Satan and sin. Notice our passage says that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What does that indicate? I think it means that Satan came back, um, probably repeatedly, and that our passage maybe just gives us one instance of a variety of instances where Jesus had to fight off Satan himself. And if Jesus' life on earth was marked by great struggles and fights with Satan and evil, you should not expect your Christian life to be any different from this. And if we truly believe this, that the Christian life is a lifelong fight until the day you die against evil, 
know what that means? It means we should be much more honest with each other about the particular sins that we face, the specific things that Satan and our flesh tempt us with. What would you do if I said, hey, we need to talk. I need to confide you in, confide in you with something. And I told you, lately, I, I've been really tempted to worship the devil. Seriously. Probably back away, be like, uh, I'll pray for you. i got to go. Um, but you find our passage that Jesus himself was tempted by something no less dark and depraved as worshiping the incarnation of evil itself. So here's the question. Do you think we are better than our Lord and Savior? That we would never be tempted with things so dark, things so evil? Do you expect regular fierce battles with Satan to be the norm for the Christian life and the lives of believers? Or do you think things like, you know, if I was just a stronger believer, I would never think that. If I was a stronger Christian, I would never struggle with X. The sad fact of the matter is that many people are ashamed and they're afraid to talk about their battles with sin, even in the church, is my experience. The very place where, at least in theory, we say that we're all sinners. Is God's church a place where we can be open and honest with each other about the demons we fight? The sinful, th- the sinful things we are regularly tempted with. Again, my experience in the church is that unfortunately, for a lot of people, the answer to this question is no. Sadly, Satan's work of sin and evil, often they can thrive in the church. Because for far too many, Christianity is reduced to a set of ideas that we master or some form of exterior religion that seeks to clean up the outside while we never deal with the evil inside of us and our own hearts. The author Flannery O'Connor succinctly said this very well uh, when her, her characters in the novel Wise Blood is described as someone who believed that, quote, the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. In Luke 4, Jesus teaches us that the Christian faith is not about hiding from evil or denying that it's present in your life. Instead, it's about confronting it and dealing with it head on through the power of the Spirit. Fighting Satan and evil in your own life is the normal life. For all baptized children of God. One more thing, we'll be done. Uh, finally, what we need to see is that Jesus succeeds where both Adam and Israel failed, and he rewrites the story of redemption for God's people. What we see in our passage is that Jesus is God's new and better Adam, he's God's new and better Israel. Jesus faced with the same essential temptation that Adam faced, the choice between listening to God's voice or the voice of Satan, which sought to lie about God and the reality of sin. So what is Jesus doing here? He's coming as the second Adam who did what Adam failed to do, and that's fight and resist and drive away the devil. In our passage, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's first promise of the gospel given to our parents in Genesis 3, this promise that one day a seed is going to come from the serpent and he's going to crush the head of Satan. What's fascinating in our passage as well is that all these, all these scripture passages that Jesus quotes are from a particular place in Israel's story. All these scripture passages he quotes come from Israel's wandering years in the desert where they were tested by Satan and they essentially failed because of their disobedience. So just like Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, we can see the parallel here. Jesus is tested by Satan for 40 days, and he doesn't fail. He's obedient to the Father. Unlike Adam and Israel, we are called, who are called God's son. In the Old Testament, Jesus is God's son who perfectly obeyed, and he did this for us. 
And so Luke wants us to see that Jesus has come to rewrite Israel's story, a story that if you read is largely marked by failure to fight. It's marked by idolatry and the following of Satan. So listen, Jesus has come to rewrite not only Israel's story, but your story as well. He's come to rewrite your story and my story. He's come to transform our stories of failure and sin so that now your story is wrapped up in his story of triumph over sin and evil. People of God, Jesus has gone ahead of you. He's conquered Satan on your behalf so that you can, you can now be set free to fight. Jesus has succeeded where you have failed. And because this is true, we know we can fight the spiritual war before us as forgiven sons and daughters, as people who are loved dearly by God. We fight as people who know that ultimately that battle has already been won because our champion has gone before us and he has dealt the power of sin a death blow. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your word that's true and right. I pray that you would help us fight by your spirit, Father. Um, I pray that we would view the rest of our service in the means of grace um, as food to equip us uh, for the fight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.